morning, church. So glad to be with you. Um, last Sunday, we just concluded our, a very powerful sermon series called An Altar in the City. And this sermon series really helped us explore our, our identity as a church, to explore our identity as an urban church and specifically a north side church. And it challenged us to think about how becoming an urban church in North, north Minneapolis is distinct. It's distinct in many ways, and we really take that to heart of who we are as a church. It really pushed us to form a more full theology of what it means to be here in the city, and hopefully it developed a deeper passion for all of us as we live into our mission statement of maturing and, and deepening and multiplying disciples here on the north side. So church, if you were blessed by this sermon series, can you give an amen, a shout to the Lord? Amen. Amen. It was a good, good sermon series. Well, our mission here at Sanctuary is to make and develop disciples, uh, followers of Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus who are biblical, uh, disciples that study and practice God's word. We are devotional. We are disciples who holistically worship God together in community. We are connectional. We are disciples who cultivate loving relationships across race and economic status, gender, or any potential barrier. And we are missional here at Sanctuary. We are disciples who spread the good news of Jesus in word and deed of compassion, mercy, and justice. These are our mission priorities as a church. But to say it another way, we are on a mission to make, mature, and multiply disciples. As simple as that. And our mission incorporates these big, bold virtues, really loud virtues that get our attention like justice, courage, compassion, and love. These very pronounced virtues are central to who we are as a church and our identity. And these are things we talk about a lot as a church. We're trying to cultivate them in our life and our walk with Jesus. But I believe that if we are committed to these prominent and even flashy virtues, if we are on a mission to mature disciples, then we must also explore and develop the lesser known or the quieter virtues that mark our belief in Jesus Christ. So our new sermon series is called Quiet Virtues. And through this sermon series, we will grow in understanding how everyday, seemingly mundane, maybe even old-fashioned, and even overlooked quieter virtues are often the foundation of those louder virtues. Quiet virtues like discernment and wisdom reverence, purity, integrity, patience, contentment, honesty, simplicity, and so many more. There are so many virtues that we can cultivate in our life as disciples of Jesus. In this sermon series, inspired by Gregory Spencer's book called Awakening the Quieter Virtues, and it's intended really for these three outcomes. First, to take a look and dive deeper into these quiet virtues. These virtues that are often minimized, that they are often seen as, they often aren't elevated for the power and the might that they really hold. Second, I hope that they will prepare us for the upcoming holiday season. 
Even for Christians, the holiday season can be busy at best and chaotic and all-consuming at worst. We often find ourselves unsatisfied and overwhelmed by the new year. And it is my hope that we're a little more intentional this year, that we slow down a little bit and really allow God to shape and transform us as we prepare for Jesus' birth. And third, pray. Pray, pray, pray. Our most powerful practice, and yet sometimes the most silenced and forgotten, is prayer. So prayer, we sometimes take that for granted. We sometimes don't understand the power that it holds, or sometimes we're just too busy to bother. But as part of this sermon series, today we are beginning 21 days of prayer together as a church. Are you excited about that? Yes, I hope so. Um, so thank you, Sham. <laughs> so either you received it on the way in, or certainly you'll receive it on the way out. And um, we have created a 21 days of prayer guide for our church. And I'm so excited for, about this. And we have to give a huge shout out to Jeremy Scheller, our Director of Communications and Design. He just makes everything look so good. And this, I was supposed to have this due to him on Monday, and I didn't get till Thursday, so much grace and love. So, but I'm just so excited about this guide. I think it will really just enrich our, this sermon series together as we look at these quieter virtues together. Because prayer is central to our identity as Christians, and our pastoral team thought that it would be powerful if we prayed together, if we prayed individually and corporately as a church, as we um, sought to really focus and carve out time for prayer in this sermon series. Because if we hope to grow in these quiet virtues, then prayer really is our first starting point. That's where we begin. So in this prayer guide, you'll see that there's a daily devotion that will guide you to read and reflect on Scripture, to pray and to respond by putting into practice some of these quieter virtues each day. And in addition, on Saturdays, you will get an opportunity to share on social media, how is this transforming you? How is this enriching your walk as a disciple? Ultimately, again, we believe that there's power in prayer, there's power in growing in these quiet virtues. And so I invite you to join us on this journey of 21 days of prayer with us. Now at its core, studying the quiet virtues acknowledges that faith is, is not about becoming perfect. It's not about just being good. It's not reduced to that. But faith in Jesus changes us, doesn't it? Faith in Jesus changes us in such a way that we aren't the same person. And so faith in Jesus produces fruit of goodness and these fruits of godly virtues and quiet virtues just like the ones that we'll explore together. And today as we look at the quiet virtues, we'll first explore the quiet virtue of authenticity. What it is, what it's not, and how authenticity can transform us as disciples. Now, often, um, authenticity can be uh, described through statements like being true to ourselves, 
finding our true self and following your heart. Those are often some of the ways in which we understand what it means to be grow and be authentic. Now, there's truth in these statements, but I believe that they're just a starting point for us. And that we could actually ask a much deeper question if we want to truly grow in authenticity. Because at the core, these statements and even nice platitudes center on one thing, you. And as we explore these quiet virtues, as we cultivate them and understand ourselves, yes, it it is a part of understanding ourselves, but to understand ourselves as disciples of Jesus. So if we want to understand what authenticity is, then I think we need to rephrase these statements, rephrase these questions. Instead, authenticity is being true to Jesus and his call as as disciples, to find your true self in Jesus, to follow Jesus. These statements centered on Jesus will illuminate and bring a greater depth to authenticity. We'll get to know ourselves for sure which is central to being authentic, but also get to know who we are in Jesus. Follow Jesus on this journey toward authenticity. And so therefore, I want to suggest a definition of authenticity for us this morning. I want to suggest that authenticity is a rigorous inside-out consistency and commitment to Jesus that courageously connects to and cares for others. That's a little bit of a mouthful. Let me say it again. (laughs) Authenticity is a rigorous, inside-out consistency and a commitment to Jesus that courageously connects to and cares for others. And in this definition, it incorporates both a personal authenticity and a communal authenticity. The first part, this rigorous inside-out consistency and commitment to Jesus, it's very personal. But, and then the second part, this that courageously connects to and cares for others is communal at its core. So church, the task for the rest of this sermon is for me to break down this definition for us and to challenge us to grow in authenticity in Jesus, this quiet yet vital virtue. And I want to do that this morning through a story. A story of a, an, a king who is overwhelmed by his own self-deception. A, king, a story of a king's son who is committed to his best friend. A story of an unlikely ruler. A story that is infused with lessons of authenticity for us. The story of King Saul, Jonathan, and David. Now, the story is found in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel, and our story begins with Israel in a time of transition. And this was at the end of an era when the judges uh, who were ruling over Israel, and now the people, according to Judges 21, verse 25, were doing what was right in their own eyes because they lacked a king, a ruler. And 1 Samuel uh, begins with its namesake, growing in wisdom and faith and leadership. And by chapter 7 and 8, Samuel was appointed as a judge, a a ruler, and he led the people to repentance and to devotion singularly to God. But despite Samuel's godly leadership, and the people were still asking for a king. And when Samuel went to God for counsel, God told him to fulfill the people's wishes. 
then things take a turn. Things take a turn, and Saul is appointed king. But before that, Samuel warns the people. He warns them in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 18. He says, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king will reign over you, will claim as, as his rights. Now, this is Samuel's warning, and he warns them with this long list of things that the king will take, that he will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. He will take your daughters to perform various tasks for them. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards. He will take a tenth of your flocks and demand the people become his slaves. And he ends with this warning by saying in verse 18 through 20, when the day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the king, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Now, if you have a child, <laughs> then you probably can relate to Samuel. As the people are saying, no, but, but they have that. Why can't I? Our first example of personal authenticity from the story today is centered on our devotion. Samuel warned the people to be devoted to God and let their lives reflect their soul devotion to Yahweh. He even warned them of the perils that would come if they placed their trust and devotion in an earthly king and ruler instead of God. But in verses 18 through 20, the people are indignant refusing Samuel's warning by placing their devotion in a king. And the reason for doing so in verse 20 is what is so shallow and so opposite of authenticity. Because all the other nations are doing it. Then we will be like all the other nations. Friends, the first part of our uh, definition of authenticity is this rigorous inside-out consistency and commitment to Jesus. Technically, the people already had a king, Yahweh, and God was trying to help the Israelites see how they could actually be different from the other nations in order to be a blessing to those nations. But the social, uh, the cultural, even political pressures were weighing on the people and they felt that they would be more powerful, more successful in their battles if they had the king like all the other nations. Growing in personal authenticity first is growing in devotion and commitment to God. That's the first step. So as the story progresses and the people do get their way and a man named Saul is appointed as king, and this, and this is like the perfect opportunity for Samuel to say, I told you so. See, I told you so. But clearly he has worked on these quieter virtues of humility much more than me. Because <laughs> that would be my first, my first reaction. This long list of all the things I told you so. You should have listened to me. Because Saul was not a good king. He wasn't a good man, and his character was far from authentic, pure, and devoted to God. Saul fear, feared people. 
instead of God. He downplayed his poor decisions. He diverted blame to others, and he obsessed over his personal power. And even when he was confronted with his own pride and duplicity, he continued in this downward spiral of denial. Saul is an object lesson and personal inauthenticity for us. But instead of judge Saul, uh, it might be helpful for us to actually empathize with him, right? Saul's leadership and his moral failures remind us of the importance of the first part of our definition of authenticity, this rigorous inside-out consistency and commitment to God. And at the heart of Saul's demise as as king is this character flaw of self-deception, And that truly is the biggest tragedy of all, that he isn't even aware of it. So it's good to go back to those Jesus-centered questions about authenticity. Do you know your true self in Jesus? Are you aware of how God made you and how God sees you and delights over you? Is it what we see on Sundays the same as the rest of the week? Is what, um, these questions are what helps us understand ourselves in light of faith and to avoid making some of these mistakes as Saul. Don't be unaware of who you are in Jesus. But continuing in our story, there's a character, a very family member of Saul, who is the true to God and who really exemplifies this personal inside-out consistency. Jonathan. Later in chapter 17, the famous David and Goliath moment happens. The gigantic Philistine, um, Goliath, comes. He appears before Saul and his army, and Goliath commands one of the Israelites to come and fight him. And we know that the young shepherd boy, David, the most unsurprising, or the most surprising, um, comes and volunteers to fight Goliath. And to everyone's surprise, David actually defeats him. There's much rejoicing and probably relief on the part of Saul, because I can only imagine what he was thinking. And after the battle, David brings both the head and the weapons of Goliath back to Jerusalem to speak with Saul. And here, David meets Jonathan. And instantly, they become fast friends, and they are devoted to one another in friendship. In fact, in 1 Samuel 18, uh, verses 1 through 4, it says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept, kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing, gave it to David, along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Jonathan's kindness and devotion to David is not only genuine, but it's also surprising. It reveals something important about Jonathan's character, and there are multiple reasons why Jonathan's authenticity towards David is surprising. First, David is Jonathan's father's servant. He doesn't need to show him love, even kindness or respect. Second, David just defeated Goliath. Jonathan clearly isn't suffering from toxic masculinity because, after all, most men would be seething with jealousy that this young boy, David, is getting all this attention for defeating this massive giant. But instead, Jonathan isn't overcome with jealousy. 
He's not overcome with envy or any sort of vice. Instead, he feels great pride. He feels great love for this new friend, Jonathan, for David. And third, Jonathan, as son of King Saul, he is the next in line to be king. And he could easily feel threatened by David, bolstering himself up, protecting himself from David's ascent to the throne. But the text says something very different. Instead, Jonathan goes to great lengths, even resisting his father, to ensure that David is actually the next one to become king. He even says in 1 Samuel, verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 17, Don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You, David, will be king over Israel. And I, Jonathan, will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. As we look at the first part of our definition of authenticity, authenticity today, this rigorous inside-out consistency and commitment to Jesus, do you see Jonathan's example of personal authenticity? It would be easy for us to oversimplify how difficult, how rigorous it was for Jonathan to be so authentic that he harbored no jealousy, no pride, no suspicion or envy or any vice in his heart for David. It's remarkable. And said he was so committed, so consistently committed to, to God and his friend that he consistently defended David, even in the presence of his toxic father who wanted David killed. So let's consider for a moment what this rigorous inside-out consistency and commitment to Jesus means for us. It takes depth and time to think about what that means for us. Personal authenticity is this daily practice of being attuned to our emotions, our motivations, our actions. What are we feeling? Why are we feeling that? What are our true motivations behind what we're doing? Do our actions reflect those deeper motivations? And are they pure? Are they selfish? Personal authenticity is also compassion for ourselves and for others. It demands a dignity and a love for ourselves just as God loves us. And dignity and love out of that overflow for others. And above all, personal authenticity is grounded in our devotion to God in all the parts of our life. And from that place of inner understanding and love, then, church, are we able to courageously connect to and care for others? The second part of our definition. So let's take a look at that second part of our definition of authenticity. Authenticity first is this rigorous inside-out consistency and commitment to Jesus. And the second, this communal part, is authenticity courageously connects to and cares for others. Now, going back to the story of Jonathan and David, they are perfect examples for us of this communal authenticity in their friendship. Now, remember, there are many reasons that Jonathan had to hate David. In fact, their relationship was so unlikely at best that it would have been natural for Jonathan to disregard David just because of the differences in their social status. And at worst... David threatened Jonathan's rightful birthright to the throne. But again, Jonathan shows this rigorous, inside-out, authentic virtue and this courageousness. 
something surprising and selfless. He courageously connects with David as a friend, and he leaves those vices aside. Again, he had every right to feel threatened, to guard himself, to be, uh, pretend to be impressed by David, unimpressed. But Jonathan didn't do any of these things. Instead, he was courageous in his authentic ways. He connected with David. He even cared for him in specific ways. And as the two of them become closer friends and King Saul's rage and his jealousy was growing toward David, King Saul was determined to expel David, determined to expel this threat. Now, Jonathan, this could have easily been his chance. Now, this was his chance to take hold of the throne, throw David under the bus, deceive, manipulate him. But instead, Jonathan is courageous. He is steadfast as a friend. Even when his father pins him up against a wall, there's a spear dangerously close to his body. His, his father is hurling insults and threats at him. And Jonathan is steadfast. He is consistent and courageous in his love for his friend, David. Again, this was Jonathan's chance. Anyone in his shoes might have taken a second thought, given to those threats, reconsider his loyalty, protect himself, right? But full of integrity and authenticity, Jonathan didn't back down. Even with his father's corruption and suspicion and abuse, manipulation, Jonathan was courageous in his commitment and care for David. And he is an example for us. An example for us, of, uh, an example of this communal authenticity that courageously connects to and then cares for others. Sanctuary, can you imagine what a church we would be like if we were committed to communal authenticity like Jonathan? Can you imagine? Now, there is so much that I imagine when I consider this. I see longtime members who connect with newcomers and connect them to the life of sanctuary. I see genuine friendships growing and loneliness dissipating. I see people discovering their gifts in the Spirit, taking risks, growing in the Spirit's uh, ministry and leading as ministry flourishes at sanctuary. I see local leaders who are developing their skills to lead and to disciple without fear of inadequacy. I see members sharing with others in the good times and in the hard times who press in when it's hard instead of pulling away. I see really good things, Sanctuary. But what, what I fear is what happens if we don't. What I fear might happen is if we don't put the work and the time into becoming an authentic community. Because what's the risk if we don't cultivate authentic community? Well, I believe the risk is the opposite of authenticity. It's the opposite. And now we could easily say that the opposite of authenticity is, is being duplicitous or, or divided. It's shallow and fake. It's withholding or inconsistent. But I want to suggest today that the opposite of authenticity, especially, especially communal authenticity, is what I call isolated independence. And what I mean by isolated independence is illustrated in this story. In a small village in Portugal, there used to be a group of women, and these women belonged to the same community together. And as one might suspect, they gathered together often in just the daily life 
together, the daily everyday parts of life. And they attended each other's weddings. They supported each other in childbirth and child rearing. They sustained their families through very vital tasks for their community, such as planting and harvesting, preparing food together. They celebrated cultural traditions, family milestones together, and even the most mundane of tasks, laundry. In fact, so central was community to these women that they'd gather together for the day-long work of washing clothes. But as industrialism and the production of laundry machines grew, something changed in the village. Something changed in the women of the village. And as more women were opting for domestic technologies in their homes for the sake of greater efficiency, a sudden outbreak of depression emerged. And no one could figure out why. Now, of course, it wasn't the presence of washing machines themselves that brought on this um, increase of depression, but instead it was the absence of community that led to isolation. Now, as uh, this story highlights what I mean by this isolated independence, now, independence is good. Don't hear me saying that because I have anyone value my personal independence. But independence that is isolated can be dangerous. Can I say that again? Isolation, independence and isolation can be dangerous. If communal authenticity is courageously connecting to and caring for others, then the opposite is isolated independence that believes that we can do it all on our own, that we can get through life constantly parroting the phrase, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. When in reality, church, we're depressed. We're anxious and we're lonely. We're struggling. We're in denial. We're overwhelmed. Now, I can't tell you how often Pastor Edrin and I have people come to us for prayer and support after months, even sometimes years, of carrying a burden. Do you know that we don't have to suffer in silence, church? Do you know that our, our elders and our pastors, our staff, our whole church wants to be with you in the burdens that you're experiencing? And instead of being crushed by them, to lift you up. Because the purpose of Christian community is to lighten each other's burdens just as Christ did. Just as Jesus Christ did. So if you're suffering in silence, if you're carrying a burden that seems to be so heavy, please tell someone. Please know that our pastoral staff, our prayer team, there are so many people who want to walk with you in that journey. Don't go at it, at a, at it alone. Ultimately, church, we know we can't do life alone. If we want to grow in authenticity, then and we have to grow in authenticity communally. And as a church we, who are tr striving to be authentically rooted here in North Minneapolis, we can't do ministry alone either. We've tried that in other seasons, and it just, just doesn't work. And as we grow as an authentic neighbors on our block, that we have learned a few things in these past two years. We've learned a few things here being rooted in our building here. And one of the most important lessons has been the necessity of being intentional and authentic partners in ministry. 
We've learned that we can't do it alone, that we can't fulfill our vision and our mission alone, and that we have grown as a result in some remarkable partnerships right here in North Minneapolis and even some in our very own building. Partnerships with some amazing um, organizations like Rebound, North Point's Syringe Exchange, and Life Rebuilders, just to name a few. And today it is so exciting that we get to highlight some of the work of these organizations, the ways in which we're trying to authentically partner together, because again, we're better when we do it together. So first, Rebound. Rebound is a community-based nonprofit just next door at our office, and they, are, uh, they were created to regain possession of the life trajectory of African-American youth. Amen. It seeks to address the overrepresentation of black youth in the justice, uh, juvenile justice system, and it is led and loved by our very own Carmian and Michael Foster. And we are proud of the work that they are doing. Amen. Thank you. Now, since renting space in our offices next door, uh, Rebound's program called Ujima, led by Trauma Prevention Program Coordinator Michelle, has supported 13 families. It has provided family coping resources. It has strengthened families who have been impacted by urban poverty and chronic trauma. They support these families through weekly meals and transportation, activities and engagement for the whole family. And each family, after they go through this program, receives $300 for participating. And they've shared that in using and partnering and sharing this space as sanctuary, it has provided families with a comfortable, safe, consistent, accessible place to heal. That is good news, isn't it? Amen. Second is... Um, since North Point's syringe exchange program started renting space at our offices next door, it has increased their reach by 800%. 800%. Amen. We should clap over that. Rejoice. The syringe exchange has provided over 20,000 clean, sterile syringes. They've connected and cared for 400 of our neighbors and friends. They've collected around 15,000 used syringes and disposed of them safely. They've used, um, they've given uh, 105 HIV tests. They've received 12 reports that people have used Narcan to respond during an opioid um, overdose just from supplies that were given out at their location. And they have reported that our neighbors are five times more likely to seek out treatment for drug addiction just by sharing space here on Broadway with us. That's good news. That's good news. And just this past week, the Syringe Exchange staff trained some of our own sanctuary staff in administering um, naloxone, an event of an opioid overdose. And in fact, just that afternoon, uh, at the bus stop, there was an overdose um, situation, and the syringe uh, staff were there. Uh, they were there to care for our neighbor in a time of great need and a time near death. And so we are grateful. And we are reminded, church, that ministry, ministry is not just Sunday morning worship and Bible study. Ministry is multifaceted at Sanctuary. We're grateful for our partnerships. 
Finally, life rebuilders. Life rebuilders seeks to set captives free by sharing the gospel and providing hope and transformation for our neighbors who are experiencing, who are in recovery from addiction, who have recently been released from prison, or who have um, experienced homelessness. Life Rebuilders Recovery Group meets Mondays and Fridays here in our lobby, and they have been growing. There are 15 residents on Mondays. There are 21 on Friday, and they have increased to include a Bible study that includes 23 residents. The Word of God is being shared, Sanctuary. And they have been a regular support uh, to the ministry here at Sanctuary. They don't just meet on their own. They are infused in a part of our church. They help with skilled tasks at the office, caring and maintaining for our lawn in the summer. They serve alongside our church at Sweat Equity. And we, church, we got to give a huge shout out to Terrence Nixon. I know he's somewhere. <laughs> he leads this ministry with passion, with a vocational calling to these residents and our friends. Now, meeting at Sanctuary has allowed consistency and trust. It's um, brought about greater support and connection with our pastoral team and staff. And Terrence has shared that um, since the residents have been meeting at Sanctuary, that a significant uh, number of, of folks have stayed sober longer just because of this space, because it's consistent, because it's open and safe. So lives are being transformed through these partnerships. And these partnerships highlight the value of authentic partnerships, authentic community together. Because we've learned that the opposite of authentic, partner, authentic, authentic partnership is trying to do everything ourselves. Trying to do it on our own. And that is not what God is calling us to. Because that doesn't uh, seek to courageously connect to and care for others. We are on a mission, church, and we are not alone in that. So I want to invite you and get you excited for next week. We are going to hear from another vital partner in ministry on the north side. And we're also going to reveal. We have an exciting reveal for you next week. We have an exciting next step that Pastor Edrin, our elders and staff team, have really not only envisioned but really discerned as our next tangible step in transforming this block for God's glory. Amen. 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 So again, we have learned that ministry is not transactional. Ministry is transformational. And it is through authentic community that we build that transformational ministry. So church, I want to invite our uh, worship team to come up as we start to wrap up. Church, I am really excited for these next 21 days of prayer together. I am so excited that we get to engage in this prayer together and see just the power of what these quiet virtues and prayer will do for us, what God will do through the Spirit um, in this time. But before I go, I want to remind us. I want to remind us again of our story of King Saul, of Jonathan, and of David, and to remind us that this quiet virtue of authenticity that it is both a personal and communal virtue. If authenticity is this rigorous inside-out consistency and commitment to Jesus that courageously connects to and cares for others, then I hope that you will consider this morning 
how God is asking you to grow in authenticity today? How is God asking you to grow in authenticity in this season? How is God asking you from the inside out to grow as a consistent disciple of Jesus? How is God asking you to courageously step out and connect with other people, to care with people in their time of greatest need? I believe that caring for one another and growing in our authenticity is one of the greatest witness we have to authentically reflect who Jesus is, to flee from hypocrisy. That's so much of what our journey is as disciples. Now, I know that this journey will be worth it, church. I know that um, God is going to do something big in this 21 days of prayer together. So I hope you're excited. I hope you're ready for that this morning.